Thanks, Steve. I'm going to ask my good mate Joel, he's going to come up and do the Bible reading for us. And the Bible reading today is from Mark 15, 40 to 16, 8. Thanks, Joel. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoned in the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Solomon, bought spices so that they might be anointed, so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other who rolled the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out to went out and fled for, from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Fantastic. Thanks, Joel. Well, it's Easter Sunday morning. It's arguably the biggest and most important day on the Christian calendar. For a lot of people, the resurrection of Jesus, however, is the too far of Christianity. Many people, may include some here today, sitting with us or watching online, We'll be happy to accept that, yes, there was this bloke who was born thousands of years ago who was named Jesus, and he was, a, a, okay, a, a very good man, um, even a great teacher. Many are even happy to accept that he performed these amazing signs, um, miracles, people call them. But that Jesus actually came back to life again, that's just a little bit too far. You're just pushing it a little bit too far there. 
In the mid-19th century, there was a Scottish Christian preacher called John Duncan, and he formulated what he called the trilemma of Jesus. The trilemma of Jesus. He stated that there were three possible ways you could respond to Jesus. You could say that he was deceived. He deceived mankind by a conscious fraud. fraud, Or that he himself was deluded. He was self-deluded. Or that he was actually divine. C.S. Lewis most famously recorded this in his book, Mere Christianity, back in 1952. He built this argument and he gave it three very memorable labels. That Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar or the Lord. Lewis went on to say that a man who was merely a man and did the sort of things that Jesus did would not be just a great moral teacher. He would actually be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. Or this man was and is the Son of God, the Lord. So a a madman, a lunatic, a liar or the Lord. You see, you can shut up Jesus as a fool in your mind, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord, Lewis stated. Well, many in Jesus' day had thought that Jesus was, in fact, a great teacher. Many of those who, in fact, we read just recently, were involved in his death thought he was a great teacher, but they put him on trial as a liar, as a blasphemer. They couldn't accept that he was Lord. And after he died, it was the centurion who was watching, participating in that crucifixion, who said, surely this man was the Son of God. So why does the resurrection matter? Why is it important? Well, because if we accept it, it it actually changes everything. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened, then Jesus is more than just a great moral teacher. He is who he actually said he was. He's God. Jesus was perfect, and if we accept that Jesus was perfect, we need to accept that we're not. And we need to accept that we need saving. This is why the resurrection is too far for people. Because it forces us to look at ourselves. You see, the amazing and tragic events that we looked at in chapter 15, which lead us to the death of Jesus, which was unpacked for us by Patrick on Friday, we saw the mockery of the crowd, the release of the criminal, Jesus' crucifixion and his death, the significance of his separation from God the Father, and the importance of his death seen symbolically in the temple with the ripping of the curtain. Jesus, the king, is dead. His body hangs on a cross. And this morning, we look at Jesus' burial and his resurrection. Because it is historically significant and eternally important. As we've seen throughout our study of Mark, which we come to the conclusion of this morning, Mark is not one who puts heaps and heaps of detail into his writing. He gets to the point pretty quickly. The point here is simple. Jesus' closest followers are gone and the unlikely outsiders stay. Those who had professed so proudly that they would die for Jesus only a few days ago are now in hiding. They've taken off. 
Who's left? It's the women. Now, sometimes it can be seen that every second woman in the Bible seems to have the name Mary, but that's actually not the case. There's a group of women here, and amongst them are two Marys that are specifically pointed out. Mary Magdalene, a devoted follower of Jesus who had followed him for many, many years, and Mary, the mother of James. Now, both of these women had followed Jesus in Galilee and had cared for his needs, and now they are still following, even though he's died. Verse 41, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs, and many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem were also there. None of the men, the women. Now, when you look across all the gospel accounts, the only witnesses who could actually say, I saw Jesus' death, I saw the burial, and I saw the resurrection, were women. Those who were once remained in the shadows the outsiders of society who hardly were noticed by the really important insiders now have central stage. These women are placed in an unexpected prominence in Mark's account. Now, why is this important? Why does Mark make a point of emphasising women here? In both Jewish and Roman culture of the day, women's testimony actually had no legal status whatsoever. Their evidence couldn't be brought into court. Society and the culture of the day stated that women were inferior and unreliable. Yet at this pivotal moment, God trusts this group of women with being witnesses. If the death, burial and resurrection is so crucial to the whole story, why does God place women as witnesses at a time when no other society would have trusted them with the same job? This is not just a nice thought or a moment for us to say, oh, look how God was so ahead of his time in relation to women's rights. No, this is so much more than this. It's not the socially perceived reliability of the witnesses that's important here. It's the truth of the message. He's deliberately using the weak of the day to show the strength is not actually in them, it's in Jesus. It's not in the witnesses, it's in the one they are witnessing. This reflects for us more of the great reversal that we see in the kingdom of God. God turns everything upside down. This is especially true when it comes to power, privilege and wealth. Jesus himself, God's son, comes in human flesh. God becomes man. Jesus, the king, he rides in on a donkey, not on a chariot. He's raised on a cross not on a throne, and given a crown of thorns, not of gold and jewels. The great reversal assures us that the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalised, all of those in society, they count. Those that society says count for nothing, count very much in the kingdom of God. At this time in history, women's counted for very little, Outsiders become insiders in this account and insiders become outsiders. Untrustworthy witnesses are trusted with the greatest news of all time. Jesus is alive. The greatest reversal of all is Jesus pouring out his life unto death. See, through this, Jesus reverses our death 
into life. Isaiah 53, 12. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Friends, Jesus' resurrection is historically certain and it is eternally significant because in it he defeated the power of death. The account now moves from the outsiders to, to an apparent insider. It's interesting as we look through this account, Mark focuses more on others than Jesus. One of the others that we see here is an apparent insider, Joseph of Arimathea. He's an insider in the sense that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the council who actually condemned Jesus to death. A rich man, a secret and surprising unlikely follower, but a genuine follower, as is recorded, he is one looking for the kingdom. Now Mark records for us that he is moved to boldly approach Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Now, this is a bit risky. He could be seen by others as sympathising with the victim. You see, the dis disposal of Jesus' body, a, a criminal in the eyes of the rulers, was at the disposal of the government. Pilate's initial response is actually one of surprise. Not that Joseph is asking. He's surprised that Jesus is already dead. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that that was so, he gave the body to Joseph. You see, Pilate doesn't believe it. He wants witnesses. He wants witnesses of credibility. A centurion who says, Jesus is dead. Now, there was a lot of pressure on Pilate and his actions and his decisions. They were being watched very, very closely by the rulers and teachers of the law. You see, it was not uncommon for a man being crucified to actually suffer for several days on the cross. But Jesus is dead very quickly in a matter of hours. Jesus wasn't fighting to stay alive. He was accepting the punishment of death. He knew this wasn't the end. He knew what was to come. Because he does what he says he will do. Now, any, many of you would know that my wife Katie and I have four beautiful boys. The journey of parenting has many highs and many lows. And as I am told, it doesn't stop when they become adult, adults, it, it just changes a bit. Um, I'm not sure if you've experienced parenting, um, but I find that sometimes, not always in parenting, when I do what I say I was going to do, this can be met with a wide range of reactions. A simple instruction which clearly outlines my intentions can be met with surprise when I follow through. Now, I believe that this isn't because I am wishy-washy and often don't mean what I say. As a dad, I do work hard on trying to follow through on the things that I say. However, there are some times when this occurs that it's met with shock. An example of this might be the boys all chilling out watching TV. It's time to wrap up and move on to the next thing. So I say, oh, when this show finishes, the TV will need to go off. Now, what often results in is a chorus at that moment with some encouragement, possibly pausing what's on. A chorus of, yes, Dad. 
But before the, that's before the show finishes. When the show actually finishes, there's a dramatic change. When it actually comes to the television being turned off, a riot of indignation can break out. You see, the ultimate explanation of what we find happening here in these chapters is God's doing what he says he's going to do. And that surprises some people. But this is what God's planned. Prophecy foretold this. God's suffering servant, Jesus, would come to save the world. What continues to excite me is the fine details of Jesus' death that's recorded. His death, burial and resurrection, recorded many, many years before Jesus was even born. An example of a reference here to Joseph's role in Isaiah 53, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You see, Mark has deliberately emphasised, yet again as he's done throughout his Gospel, the fulfilment of which was prophesied in Scripture, the fulfilment through Jesus. Once again, we see that God does what he said he would do. It happens. Now, Joseph, being a Pharisee, was very conscious of the fact that it was actually preparation day. And that was the day that the Sorry, and that the day of the Sabbath was fast approaching, and so they needed to be prepared for that. And he needed to get Jesus' lifeless course down off the cross quickly before the Sabbath came. Pilate receiving the confirmation from the centurion that Jesus was actually dead, he, he gives this corpse to Jesus, and a rushed burial is required due to the looming Sabbath. There was no time for the anointing or for the preparation, but once again Jesus knew this. Once again, God had a plan. It had already been organised. Think back to Mark 14 with the alabaster jar being broken over Jesus and the perfume being poured on his head. God has a plan and he knows what's coming. Let's get back into chapter 15, picking up the account from verse 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salom, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the next day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will row the stone away? See, they're heading there to do the anointing, but it's already been done. The Sabbath has come and passed and we find the women who saw Jesus buried hurry back early in the morning so that they may anoint his body. They're expecting that Jesus' body would still be there. They're not expecting the resurrection they're not expecting Jesus to do what he said he would do. They're trying to work out the logistics of who's going to move that big rock. The women were coming to the tomb with a sense of grief and anxiety, not with a sense of hope and anticipation. They were not expecting Jesus to do what he said he would do. The empty tomb is a sign for those with faith to see that Jesus' trust in his Father was not actually misplaced. The stone was already rolled away. Jesus wasn't there. There was a young man sitting. Now they fully expected to see the corpse in decay, ready to return to the dust, and that's why they brought the spices. But what confronts them is not a corpse, but a young man. Can you just imagine their reaction? The stone's rolled away, they walk in, and who's this guy? They're shocked, they're alarmed. And the response is, don't be alarmed, he said. 
you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Now Mark doesn't go into great details of who this young man is or try to justify the proof of Jesus' resurrected body. He simply states it. You're looking for him, he's not there. See, it's empty. Mark doesn't want us to get distracted from the simple fact that Jesus did what he said he would do. Mark's gospel began with a messenger in John the Baptist announcing what God was about to do and Mark is finishing his gospel account with a messenger, the young man, announcing what God has done. He is risen. The empty tomb tells us the wonderful truth that death is robbed of its prey. The final victory is not with the darkness but with light. Jesus was crucified. He did die. He was buried and he rose again. He is alive and he is going where he said he would go. And he is calling those who follow him to follow him. Verse 7. The young man says, but go. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you where you will see him just as he told you. Go and tell. Galilee? Why Galilee? What's so special about Galilee? Well, Galilee was where the disciples were called to follow Jesus in the first place. And now they're being called back to that place to a place to regroup and to move forward with God's mission together. Things have changed, remember, in this great reversal. Jerusalem's not the centre of God's movement anymore. God is not found in the temple, communicated through a high priest and a series of sacrifices. We have a new high priest. The perfect sacrifice has been given and the curtain is ripped. We can communicate directly with God the Father through Jesus the Son. This is why the messenger directs the women to go to Galilee. He directs them to go and tell and to keep following. He tells them to remind the disciples to go to Galilee just as Jesus had told them he would go only days before. You see, Jesus is leading. He's going ahead of them, regathering the scattered and leading them. This is what Jesus does. He regathers the scattered and leads us. He wants us to follow him. Follow Jesus. He was dead. But he's alive. Don't stop following him. Friends, we can relate here. See, Jesus isn't physically present with us here today. We know from the Bible, from the story of the Bible, that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he appeared to many and he ascended alive to heaven and is seated with God the Father. See, we can find ourselves thinking sometimes, well, he's not here. But let us remember that he has gone ahead of us and he is preparing a place for us and he is still calling us to follow him. In the panic at his death, the disciples scattered. Now they're to go back where they first met Jesus. And he will be with them there again. See, Jesus is faithful and he always does what he says he will do. He doesn't give up on his disciples, even though they desert him. 
He doesn't give up on those who follow him. So how do the women respond? Do they quickly run and tell the disciples what they've seen and rush to Galilee? Well, there's a great irony here. They're told to go and tell and they don't. Before Jesus' death, his general pattern had been to tell those around him not to go and tell anyone after they were healed or he had ministered to them in some way. Don't go and tell. But these women are now being told to go and tell. Things are changed. It is now the time to go and to tell. But they don't go. And they don't tell. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. We see they too are silent and run away just like the disciples. Just like Peter was drawn to the courtyard and then bolted, gripped by fear, they're drawn to the tomb and bolt, gripped by fear. But we know that their silence is only temporary. The original audience of Mark's gospel would not have been left fretting, oh no, they didn't go and tell anyone. The original audience and us here today know that Jesus appeared to others after his resurrection. Jesus' words, Mark 14, 28, have been fulfilled. You will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The seemingly abrupt end to Mark, in verse 8, touches on the reality of Jesus' followers must live with failure. See, last week we saw Peter's failure to stand up for Jesus and here the messenger specifically mentions Peter, communicating clearly that our human failure doesn't kick us out of God's love. It doesn't render us useless to his purposes. What this does is it forces us to reflect on our own fear and our own silence, but not to stay there and wallow in it. Mark's focus is not to be on the woman's failure, but that Jesus still does what he says he's going to do, regardless. See, God's success is not dependent on human performance. We see further human failure and disobedience, and yet God's plan still prevails. The disciples were scattered, and Peter tried to stay close and failed. The women stayed for a little bit longer, but when they were called into action, they also failed. But God still succeeded. With God, we learn that our failures are not fatal to his plans. And that's really encouraging, because we all make lots of them. Jesus' foreknowledge of what is to come is proof that we can trust what he says will come true, despite human muddling and strong opposition. Our failures do not mean the end of discipleship, or the defeat of God's purposes, because the words of Jesus will not fail. He will still lead the way, and he calls us to follow. Now today you might hear this story of Easter Sunday, and go back to your lives largely unaffected. Maybe it's safer just to remain silent. Maybe you want to treasure these things in your heart for yourself or maybe you still think that the resurrection is the too far of Christianity. But friends, if you do believe, 
we are told to go and to tell. But be encouraged that Jesus goes before us. And when we fail, when I fail, as we all do, this doesn't mean God's plan will fail. It's God's work, sustained by his mercy and his power. And he chooses to involve us in, in it, knowing that we're going to fail. Just like the disciples did. That was no surprise to Jesus. Just like Mary did. No surprise. Just like we do. Not a surprise to God. And we also know that just as the disciples were given the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim, we too have been given the same Spirit to give us boldness and to guide us as we follow Jesus. We know that the women didn't stay silent for long. We know that the scattered disciples did get back together. We know that Peter was used mightily by God despite his failures. This gives us hope. Friends, we can take comfort in this. God uses people who fail, but he will never fail to do what he says he will do. Easter Sunday is not the end of the story. This morning we remembered that Jesus rose again, just as he said he would. And we can look forward to him coming again, just as he said he would. We too are called to go and tell, and we too can be afraid. But we too can know with certainty that God is leading the way and going before us, and that our failures won't stop his plans. We are invited to be involved in what God is doing. We too are called to follow, to be disciples, following Jesus. His death and resurrection is not only historically significant, it is eternally significant, and it is relevant to us today. Friends, because of this, we can know with certainty that God will do what he says, so we look forward. We look forward with hope to when Christ comes again, just as he said he would. Mark 13, 26 tells us, At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your, your word, and we thank you for this account from Mark Lord, we thank you for the reminder that as humans we fail, your disciples failed, the women failed, but your plan will never fail. Because we're not perfect, and you are. And that helps us to remember that we need you. Thank you that you died to take the punishment and the consequence of sin, but that you rose again and that you ascended to be with the Father, and that you will come again and call your people back to yourself. We thank you that you are going ahead of us and that we are called to follow you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.